This is an AMI podcast. The couple times that I've tried to put on mascara, I get it on and then I put my glasses on and it smears up my glasses. Are my eyelashes too long? I don't understand. Jenny Bovard and friends share the funny and awkward moments that come from life with vision loss. I'm simply here to tell you some real stories in a real way from my own personal experiences. Low Vision Moments, new episodes every month. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. In 1988, a decision of the Supreme Court of Canada held that the abortion provision of the criminal code was unconstitutional because it violated women's rights under Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms to security of the person. This decision marked a significant victory for the pro-choice movement in Canada. There had, by then, been decades of struggle, rallies, lobbying of government, doctors working in clinics to offer abortions to women, even though at that time the practice had been illegal. Many women became synonymous with the pro-choice movement. Amongst them is author and activist Judy Rebick. Today, we discuss the documentary, Judy versus Capitalism. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. And welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joitha Gupta, and I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're staying safe and remaining connected with your friends and family during the pandemic as we get into the depth of winter across the country. I know that isolation and loneliness can be a real challenge for a number of you. So I hope that with the holiday season approaching, with COVID-19 restrictions across many parts of the country, you are nevertheless finding ways to not only stay safe, but also to stay involved and stay connected. There are so many options now to do things over Zoom or to do things online that I hope, if possible, you're making use of all of them. In any case, I am thinking of all of you and I hope uh, you're thinking of me. Judy Rebick is an author, activist, feminist. Uh, she's also the founder of Rabble.ca, served a long term as the president of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women. And as I mentioned off the top in the opening, is quite well known in connection with the pro-choice movement in Canada. Her memoir, Heroes in My Head, came out about a year and a half ago. And I remember reading it at the time and thinking, I have got to talk to Judy Rebick. And as as it happens, you know, you, you think about these things and it never really happens. I got lucky because now there's a documentary about Judy and her life. It's called Judy versus Capitalism. And I was able to get a hold of Judy Rebick to talk about the documentary and by extension, the memoir. So welcome, Judy Rebick. It's really good to have you on the program. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Can I just say how nice it is just to speak to you? Because you remind me of pre-COVID times. Um, often <laughs> my ritual is to go to the farmer's market here in Toronto at St. Lawrence Market. And uh, it was not unusual to run into you in that space. So well, I always am, right. think of it fondly. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. Me in me. fact, there was this one time that, that <laughs> yeah, I do too. You know, In fact, I remember this one occasion where um, I was carrying all our grocery bags laid down with groceries and my husband was walking along behind me and he said to me in an undertone, oh, good grief, that was Judy Rebick. And she, what must she think of us? You know, my <laughs> wife is carrying all the groceries and I'm walking two steps behind her. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, geez. 
so let's so you've been very busy in the last two or so two three four years now judy writing the memoir and then of course the documentary i'm curious about which one came first did you write the memoir and then the documentary or did they kind of go together in lockstep well, they sort of went together i was writing the memoir and um mike holboom who's the director of the film asked me if said he wanted to make a film about me it really had nothing to do with the book mm -hmm. um but since I was writing the book, there's some similar themes in the book and the and the film. But the film was more, it's more like a portrait of me from his perspective, mm -hmm. um, I, I'd say. Because it's an experimental film. It's not a standard documentary by any means. And That's right. So, so he, he, yeah, so he interviewed me and, um, you know, many times. Like, I think it's, he had about three hours or four hours of interviews with me. And then he put the film together from that. Right. It is, it is a very experimental film. If you watch the film, there's so much that's going on on screen, interpretations of the things that are happening to you. Uh, a lot of archival footage, actually. It's very interesting. Um, and maybe I should be asking the director this question, but <laughs> did you get a sense of his overall vision with the film? I mean, it is your story, but it's also kind of his take on your story. Yeah, it's his take on my story. And he thinks it's, I think he feels that it's a story of a generation of women, you know, mm -hmm. the women who came of age at a time of extreme sexism and very limited opportunities for women. And the first generation that really broke out of that. And so I think he was seeing it both at, as a story of, of, of my generation of women, as well as my story. Um mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a real, you know, he's, he's very much an artist, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes I think he doesn't know himself what he's exactly doing. You know, it's just sort of <laughs> intuitive. It's intuitive. In fact, yeah. at, at an early stage in the, um, in the uh, process, I introduced him to a friend and I said, Mike's making a film about me. And he said, well, it's not exactly about Judy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and at one um, point, he wasn't even going to film me at all. It was just going to be my voice with other oh. pictures. But then he changed that. But anyway, mm. yeah, so it was a kind of a mystery for me what, what he would come up with. But because I know him very well, he's a very close friend. Right. I trusted him. To... Mm -hmm. And the other thing is the, the movie is getting unusual attention for his movies because while he's a very well-known filmmaker, he won the Governor General award for visual arts uh three years ago mm. um his films don't usually get a lot of attention you know they go get into a few film festivals and so on well this one now i think we're past 20 film festivals mm. that it's in so i have to ask you a controversial question so i'm you you know from having met me at the farmer's market that i'm visually impaired and it just so happens that i watched the film with my husband and he was yeah. able to describe a lot of what was going on on screen. And that, you know, your story it is, is very powerful. The interviews are really powerful. And, it, it, and it, the story does stand on its own. But the visuals in the film, I think, really lent something to it. Do you know if there's a, a chance that down the road you would try to, or the director would try to describe some of those images to make it so that people who are uh, maybe visually impaired but don't have husbands to describe things to them <laughs> would also have access yeah. to the film? I don't know. I can ask him. Um, I think it's really hard to do because I don't even understand some of the visuals, right? Like, like uh, 
every time I watch the film, I've watched it about six times now, mm-hmm. I see something else that I hadn't seen before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the visuals are like, the film in a way, it's like poetry, right? That mm-hmm. the first, on first reading or hearing or seeing, you don't really get what it is. And even, and there's multiple, the other thing is there's multiple impressions of what it is. So mm-hmm. um, I see, for example, there's a scene where um, there's two women and at first they're fighting and then one woman puts the other woman over her shoulder and walks with her, right? Mm-hmm. And someone said they saw that as a metaphor for my, um, my mental health problem, which is I'm dissociative, mm-hmm. right? So they saw that as a metaphor for dissociation. In other words, my, you know, well, I might as well say it. I I was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder or what's now Mm -hmm. called dissociative identity disorder. So this person saw that image as um, me holding myself, right? Mm -hmm. And supporting myself. I didn't see it that way, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm just not sure it would work, I guess, is what I'm saying. I'm sorry that it's not accessible for people with visual impairments, but I don't think describing it would really work. Um, maybe. I mean, I can maybe. ask. It's maybe. It's an interesting question because... Have you ever seen um, that No, I haven't. And that's the that's the challenge. I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because there are limits to how, how you can describe and how well you can describe. And especially when you have visuals where you've got layer upon layer of meaning, it's not just a question of telling people what's going on, but uh, doing it in a way that people can also make those interpretations. So um, I, le- I leave the description to the experts, but I thought I would ask okay. you a little bit. Of, <laughs> I thought I would ask you a little bit about, um, you know, this, a lot of what's featured in the film is in the six parts. They're talking about, you know, your your childhood um, and then your adolescence. And then it kind of goes on to talking about your work as a feminist and in the abortion movement. Uh, amongst feminists, there's this added, and I know you know it, which is the personal is political. How did your early life, growing up in New York, moving to Toronto, how did all of that, sh- going to McGill, how did that shape your activism as an adult? My father abused me when I was a little girl, mm-hmm. and, but he was also a real fighter. You know, he stood up to authority. He was, uh, so he taught me to stand up for myself, even though I couldn't stand up for myself in relation to him, right? Mm-hmm. I saw him stand up in the world. And I, so I learned how to fight. I learned how to stand, literally fight. And, um, and how, and not to accept anyone putting, you know, anyone threatening me or bullying me or anything like that. So I think that I learned from my childhood. And also I grew up with two brothers. And so um, and I also, when I was a little girl, I was always with boys because my cousins, most of my cousins my age were, were boys. And so, you know, I learned how to fight. I learned how to um, how to speak for myself. So that was, you know, bro- growing up in Brooklyn. And also, you know, being, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of joke, but Brooklyn, I'm a Brooklyn Jew and Brooklyn Jews have big mouths, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I have a big mouth, so... <laughs> And I always did. I always had a big mouth. So, um, so I think that, and also I suffered a lot because I was abused as a child and I, disso- as a re- I dissociated and that gave me, um, 
kind of superpowers because I had I couldn't feel fear or anxiety at all. And uh, so I was literally fearless, which was a problem for me, but it worked really well as an activist. And then the last is I came of age in the 60s. I went to McGill in 1964, and that was the beginning of the civil rights movement, and then the anti-war movement, and then, you know, it was a time of huge change, a bit like now. Mm-hmm. Um, except that we could see each other and work together, not, you know, but it's it, like the Black Lives Matter uh, uprisings and the change mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and the, the way the world is right now. It was the 60s was a similar time, uh, only it was youth that were rebelling and we didn't have public support at all. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a very politicizing time. So I think, uh, you know, my personal... Um, my my childhood, which was on the one hand privileged and on the other hand terrible, um, gave me a lot of strength uh, for activism. Gave me a lot of weaknesses on the personal side of things, but on the political side of things, um, it gave me a lot of strength. How did you get involved with the with the struggle for abortion rights for women? Was that at McGill as well? No. Well, well, I did do a little bit at McGill because at that time, when I was at McGill, abortion was completely illegal. And, of course, I had friends who got pregnant, and they asked me if I knew a doctor because, um, you know, a lot of the illegal abortions were done by people who didn't know what they were doing. And at that time, the number one reason for uh, women under 25 to be admitted to emergency were botched abortions. Right. Mm-hmm. So I made it my business to find a doctor who was doing safe abortion. And um, and so I was part of a kind of underground referral network uh, on abortion. But I didn't really get involved until 1980. And at that time, I had been part of a far left group um, and I had quit because I suffered a, a depression, a serious clinical depression. And I quit. And when I came out of that, I decided I didn't want to be part of that group anymore. I'd gone through therapy for a, a number of, for, you know, a number of months. And I just decided I didn't want to be part of that group. And really the next day after I quit, I went to a meeting of the, of what became the Ontario Coalition for Abortion Clinics. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about opening an abortion clinic, an illegal abortion clinic in Toronto. And I thought, cool, you know, I want to be part of this. And I got involved mm-hmm. that way. My name is Joita Gupta, and with me is Judy Rebic, who is an author, feminist, activist, and we're discussing a documentary based on her life, Judy versus Capitalism. We were talking before the break about how you got involved with the abortion rights movement in Canada. And I think one of the most iconic moments from that struggle, I was telling Nasreen about this just before you know uh, we called you, is this moment where you prevent the stabbing of Henry Morgenthaler. What what happened on that day and what were you thinking when you had to intervene in that incident? Because it was caught well, on camera and became this huge thing, but I'm just so curious about what was going through your mind. Yeah, um, not much. <laughs> um, it was the opening day of the clinic and um, I was, Dr. Morgenthaler had asked me to be the spokesperson for the clinic when it opened. Uh, later, he decided I was too radical to be the spokesperson. <laughs> but at that moment, um, I was a spokesperson. And he lived in Montreal. He was, he was arriving at three. So we decided to open the clinic for the media. There were no patients that day. 
Mm-hmm. And um, there was we were we weren't worried about the anti-choice because it was a, we opened it when there was a conservative government in Ontario, and the anti-choice was sure they would shut it down, so they weren't protesting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we didn't know what was going to happen, so we had arranged that myself. I had a lot of experience as a marshal on demonstrations, so I had mm-hmm. you know I had uh, I was calm and cool under pressure. And this woman, Cheryl, who was a psychiatric nurse, and so she was used to dealing with difficult situations. So we we had decided that she and I would um, escort Dr. Morgenthaler into the clinic. And he he arrived, and it was on Herbert Street, which is a small street in Toronto. And um, we crossed the street with him, her on one side and me on the other. And there was about 100 media there, you know, cameras Mm -hmm. and you know, it was the old days, there was no internet, so there was lots and lots of media. And um, there was a small group of people who came to welcome him, maybe 50. And um, out of the crowd came this middle-aged man, and he was walking toward us. And at first, we didn't realize that he was coming to attack Dr. Morgenthaler, but then um, he had, he pulled he had the garden shears up as if to stab him and he grabbed Dr. Morgenthaler with his hand and I was on the same side. So I pulled his arm off Dr. Morgenthaler and Cheryl ushered Dr. Morgenthaler away into the clinic. Um, I didn't, at first I didn't see the, um, the garden shears. They were, I, I call them garden shears, which makes them sound um, harmless, not that harmful, but, as you see in the as you see in the document as you can see mm-hmm. in the documentary, they're very sharp garden shears. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he he had garden shears ready to stab Dr. Morgenthaler, but once I pushed him away, he he brought the he didn't want to stab me, he wanted to stab him. So he brought the garden shears down. But I did step in front of the garden shears. I wasn't aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was dissociated, as I explained before. And right. so all I was focused on was getting this guy away. And I started yelling at him, you know, what are you doing? He yelled at me and so on. But he did back off. The crazy thing that I did was I chased him. I followed him. Um, or I was in the process of following him because I was thinking, well, uh, you know, I, the police want to know where he's going, right? So I followed mm-hmm. him. And fortunately, Cheryl, as soon as she got Dr. Morgenthaler safely into the clinic, she came out to find me. And she realized as a nurse that I was dissociated. I was acting in an irrational way. And, right. and so she started yelling my name. And that stopped me. She said, Judy, stop. Judy, stop. Mm-hmm. Right? And that stopped me. So I didn't follow him anymore. But, um, yeah. And it took, I'd say I was really dissociated. I, I wasn't feeling anything at first. Right. And then there was another woman who was a therapist who was in the crowd. And she said, Judy, come behind the clinic and let's talk. And I think I cried a bit at that point, but then I did, you know, a whole round of television interviews and all that. So it was huge news. It was very it political was, yeah. violence. is very rare in Canada. And of course, mm-hmm. they all got it on camera, right? Yeah, So exactly. it was a huge story. It was a huge story. So I did all this media. And then um, that night, I was so happy that I was staying at a friend's house. And... Um, all I could think of is I have to go home. I have to go home. I have to go home. And I thought, this is weird. Like, why am I thinking that? So I called my therapist at the time and I told him, And you know, not, unlike today, there was no social media. So he didn't know what had happened. He hadn't watched the news that night. Mm-hmm. Right? 
So he said the next morning is when I called him. So he said, "Go home and rest. You're 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 in shock, mm-hmm. and you have to recover from this." So I went home. So I talking to him, I started. I think I cried for about two hours after that. But I spent, you know, a day home and then I went back to work. And back to work. And yeah. and that is sort of the reality for not just you, but I think for a lot of organizers, you know, we do the work and then we start to feel burnt out or it could be other things that we mistake for burnout. Um, mm-hmm. You are so candid in the documentary about uh, some of your, your challenges, your personal challenges. We have a clip here that Nisreen is going to roll for us. Let's have a listen and we'll talk a bit about it. All my life, I had very serious health problems, mental and physical health. I had, for example, I had my gallbladder removed at 18. And I think I suffered off and on from depression most of my life, but I didn't call it that. I called it burnout. Then in 1980, I I suffered a very severe clinical depression. You know, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't get out of bed. I started to be flooded with memories of me being abused as a child, just flooded with them. It's a very atmospheric clip. I mean, you're obviously talking, but there's a lot of things happening on screen as well. And if you're just listening to the background, there's a lot of ambience in that in that clip. Judy, in, in the documentary later on, you said that talking about your struggles uh, with mental health and the fragmentation of your personality was one of the most revolutionary things you had ever done. Tell us more about it. Well, I think that we uh, hide uh, all this, you know. I think mm-hmm. that um, in this capitalist, patriarchal, racist country, you know, uh, culture that we live in, a lot of us suffer very serious um, mental health problems, you know, depression, anxiety. I mean, I had an extreme form, what's considered an extreme form of um mental so-called illness. I don't like the term mental illness at all because mm-hmm. uh, maybe we could talk about that later. But I think for most people, it's not an illness. It's, it's based on trauma. It's an injury. And I mm-hmm. think that there are people who have mental illness that uh, they inherit, right? And that I think we can call an illness. But for most of us, uh, it's an in- it's due to trauma, whether it's personal trauma or social trauma. And, mm-hmm. um, and so... Um, we don't talk about it. We hide it. And so I think that talking, uh, and, and there's so much in our culture that's lies. And, you know, our whole history is a lie. You know, the history they tell us about Canada is a lie. I mean, it's starting to be mm-hmm. corrected now. Um, but our whole culture is, and you know, capitalist society is based on lies. And so telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a person who's, seen but and I am a very strong person I am a strong person right and Mm -hmm. in the world I'm a pretty powerful person you know I managed to be on television even though I have left-wing politics you know all those things Mm -hmm. that I've accomplished and so people think you know the way that we create individuals are as if they're extraordinary and they do extraordinary things and that is true for certain people 
But a lot of those people who do extraordinary things have serious mental health problems, but they Mm -hmm. never talk about it. And so, um, you know, and it's obvious that we elect leaders who have serious mental health problems in terms of uh, sociopathy, but that's not considered a bad thing. In fact, our, our culture our culture encourages it, mm-hmm. but it's also a mental health problem, right? right? And so I think by talking about it and admitting it, um, we do two things. One, we give comfort to people who experience the same thing and don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the other is that we don't accept the narrative that gets created about us which is, oh, mm-hmm. Judy Rebick, she's such a powerful person. How does she get? She's so courageous. She's fearless, as if that's a good thing. Fearless isn't a good thing. Fear has a function. <laughs> it helps us mm-hmm. avoid getting hurt. And so exactly. being fearless is not, not, is not admirable. I don't think it's admirable. Right? Courage is admirable, but courage is where you feel fear and you do something anyway. That's mm-hmm. admirable, but fearlessness is, 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 is a problem. And so yeah. I think by talking about it, we, we contribute to changing the culture. It's still really hard. You know, like even now, I wrote this book, um, which lays it all out very clearly. And nobody really wants to talk to me about it. You know, they'll talk to me more about mm-hmm. the film than the book. I don't, this is also, I don't understand. But, mm-hmm. um, but it's, uh, it's so, so that's why I feel like we live in a culture of lies. And mm-hmm. so telling the truth in a culture of lies, telling the truth is revolutionary. Right? It is. And this no, one it really is a hard is. one. Yeah, and this one is a hard one to tell, too, because dissociative, you know, multiple personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder has been very sensationalized by Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So people think that you're really quite mad, you know? Mm-hmm. Mad, I know, is a good word now. So crazy or whatever word you want to say, like because of Three Faces of Eve and Sybil, which were mm-hmm. very and Sybil. sensationalized. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a hard one to own up to. In fact, I was one that the first time I spoke publicly about um, the abuse and the dissociative identity disorder was at a conference of uh, women in poverty. Okay? And this conference was a big conference, about 500 people. And women were telling their stories of abuse, you know, and uh, sexual mm-hmm. abuse and physical abuse and so on, uh, poor women. And mm-hmm. so I decided, okay, in respect to them, I would tell my story, even though I hadn't told it yet publicly. I was just, I was just beginning to write the book or in the middle of mm-hmm. writing the book. And, and when I came down, a woman came up to me and said, I, I also have multiple personalities, but I never tell anybody. Even in this culture, in that culture, where everybody's mm-hmm. telling their stories, she wouldn't mm-hmm. tell that story because she was afraid everybody would think she was quote unquote crazy. Well, we appreciate that you talked to us today. The time has really flown by, Judy, but it was such a pleasure getting to talk with you and hearing about the the documentary and chatting a bit about the memoir. Thanks a lot for speaking to us today. Okay, thank you. And thanks for the challenge about visual, trying to verbalize the visuals in the film. I'll talk to Mike about it for sure. (laughs) Thanks a lot. I don't think it's going to be possible, but we'll try. (laughs) Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.
That was activist and author and feminist Judy Rebick, who talked to us about her the documentary the feature, that features her life story, which is Judy versus Capitalism. And we chatted a bit about her memoir, Heroes in My Head. You can always catch our conversation on your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Judy Rebick for being my guest on the program today. The technical producer for the pulse is Nisreen Abdul Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. And Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and stay safe. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.com. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider. Yay.